This is On Being's Unheard Cuts, and I'm not Krista Tippett. I'm Pico Ayer, and you're listening to my unedited conversation with Krista. I interviewed her at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as part of its annual arts and lecture series. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. Hello, good evening. Welcome to UCSB Campbell Hall. Uh, I'm Roman Bratiak. I'm the Associate Director at the UCSB Arts and Lectures Program. Uh, Tonight's event is not a lecture. It's actually a conversation event uh, with Pico Iyer and Krista Tippett. Uh, And there will be time for questions uh, after the conversation part of it. Uh, I want to start off by um, thanking the Beth Chamberlain Endowment for Cultural Understanding for supporting uh, tonight's event. I particularly want to thank and welcome here to the theater uh, Beth's mother, Gail Gellis. Thank you for being here. And also Beth's brother, Russell Chamberlain. Uh, So thank you again for supporting this annual lecture. Uh, We've also received additional support from the Hester and Harold Schoen Arts and Lectures Endowment, and, of course, our community partner, the Orfla family. I also want to thank uh, Sage Publications, our 1516 corporate sponsor, and all of our producer circle members who are here this evening. Uh, You know who you are, and if you're not a member, we'd love for you to join that group. Uh, It helps us make programs like this evening possible. Uh, The format for tonight... Krista Tippett and Pico Iyer will have an onstage conversation. That's going to be about 75 minutes in length. Then we'll have some time for audience questions. And then afterwards, uh, we will have a book signing up here on the stage for Krista. And then Pico very kindly um, has agreed to meet with uh, people out at the Chaucer's Books table. Uh, there are copies of uh, both Krista's books and Pico's books available for purchase from uh, that table. Uh, Pico's going to do the formal introduction tonight, so I'll introduce him, and then he'll come out and introduce Krista. Pico Iyer is the author of two novels and ten works of nonfiction, including, in recent years, The Art of Stillness and The Open Road, that book which was based on three decades of conversations and travels with the 14th Dalai Lama. is a very special book, and I hope you can pick it up. I think it's available in the lobby. It's called The Open Road. He's given two talks for TED, one on movement and one on stillness, and he writes up to 100 articles a year for such prestigious publications as the New York Times, Granta, and Harper's. Pico is truly a uh, global citizen. He grew up between England and Santa Barbara and has spent most of his time recently in rural Japan. He's been a great friend to the Arts and Lectures program and has moderated conversations with us previously with people like uh, Werner Herzog, Amy Tan, uh, and most recently with Sebastian Sagado at the Arlington Theater. So it's really a pleasure to have Pico uh, doing the conversation event tonight. Please welcome to the stage Pico Iyer. Uh, one morning last year, I woke up in Orange County, (laughs) promising beginning, Uh, and I had to fly out of LAX before lunchtime. But on my way to the airport, I had to go to a radio station for an interview that had been scheduled almost a year before. So 
I found myself nosing through this dystopian wilderness of mini malls and parking lots and warehouses in Culver City. And finally, I located the radio station, and I was feeling frazzled and exhausted, really not myself at all, and of course worried about how I would get to the airport afterwards. And somebody took me to a small dark room, and they gave me a pair of headphones. And very soon, a warm, reassuring, melodious voice of somebody I'd never met began talking to me. And within maybe 10 minutes, I was saying things that I didn't even know I had inside myself. And I was saying things I might not have said to most of my closest friends. Uh, this kind stranger seemed to have read every last word I'd ever written. Uh, she knew my thoughts better than I knew them myself. And usually when I go to a radio station, I'm told, well, we have four minutes or maximum of six minutes, so please will you talk in sound bites. Uh, in this instance, we had an uninterrupted 90 minutes, and it really felt like an exploration. And at the end of the 90 minutes, uh, I had to tell this person I had never seen that this had been the most soulful, searching, intimate conversation I could remember having. And I think it's the same experience that Yo-Yo Ma and Mary Oliver and Desmond Tutu have all, and hundreds of others have all known. I think to be on Krista's show on being really changes your life by clarifying it. And it wasn't a complete surprise to me because, as some of you know, I and my wife live in this rented two-room apartment in nowhere, Japan. Uh, we have no bicycle, no car, no magazines, no newspapers, no TV that I can understand. Uh, but, but I am a journalist, so I need to keep up with the world. And I do so just by listening to two public radio programs. I listen to Tom Ashbrook's On Point, which for me gives a really intelligent and dialectical view of what's happening in the outside world. But much more important, I listen religiously uh, to Krista Tippett and On Being for an account of the soul and the journey of the soul. And I think Krista and her guests have really become some of my closest companions because they discuss the most essential issues with such honesty and vulnerability. And it's no secret that the public discourse in our country is getting more violent, more loud, and more extreme with every passing season. Uh, noise seems to trump nuance. Uh, people seem more interested often in personality than in real humanity. And into this cacophony comes only one mass media voice that I'm aware of, Christa's, to essentially educate us in the art of listening and to speak to and for those of us who don't want easy answers, maybe don't want answers at all, but want to live in the questions and care about essential issues but don't want to be pushed into a box. And she speaks to those of us who don't want to hear what a guest had for breakfast or the latest news on her breakup, but we do want to hear about what really sustains her, what she cares about, uh, where she turns in moments of stress. Uh, and you all know that President Obama honored Krista two years ago with really one of the highest honors in the land, the National Humanities Medal, for so thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of existence. But I think even more than that, what she's really done is create a whole community 
of questioners and searchers. Uh, she has poets and scientists and nuns and civil rights leaders and many others on her show, and she binds us all into a circle. Uh, I have a friend who is a prior of a Benedictine monastery, and he has all his monks listen every day at lunchtime to Christa's program as a form of what they call Lectio Divina, a scriptural reading. Uh, I have a lawyer friend back east who told me that the closest he ever came to listening to a Sunday service was every Sunday listening to Krista. Uh, and actually, I was just uh, working on an article with an editor from, of all places, uh, Martha Stewart Living, and <laughs> she confessed a little embarrassedly, as many might, um, that the one churchy thing she does, as she puts it, is listen to Krista Tippett every week. And after my show with Krista Tippett aired, um, I got the most interesting and imaginative invitations from Australia and England, all over the place. It's really a global neighborhood uh, that she has helped to create. And I feel that she transforms the public discourse by opening up the inner landscape. So uh, I'll finally end now, but all of you know that she's produced three books so far. Uh, Speaking on Faith takes us into her life and her vision, her work. Uh, Einstein's God orchestrates a dialogue between religion and science. But her brand new book, uh, Becoming Wise, is for me her most eloquent and passionate book yet. And it's really a a call to hope and a call to action. And it looks at how age-old issues taking new forms and perhaps inviting new responses as we try to chart our way through this young century. So it is an incredible thrill to welcome Krista Tippett to Santa Barbara and also to perform what I gather is called theft of the dial, which means I'm going to switch the microphone over to her side and at last, after years of listening to her, patiently and gracefully draw people out. I'm looking forward to drawing her out. So please join me in welcoming Krista Tippett. Of course, <laughs> you know how I'm going to begin, because it's how you begin all your shows. Uh, and it's a lovely, soft way to begin, which is to go to the roots and the childhood of your guests and ask them about how, as children, they first began thinking about larger things. And I know that you are the granddaughter of a fire and brimstone Southern Baptist preacher. You grew up in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Uh, amidst lots of prohibitions, no drinking, no singing, no card playing, but you always stress that your grandfather and the people around you were lusty and fun and kind. Yes. And I've always wondered whether all of this turned you into a rebel or whether you're already thinking, well, these are two contradictory things going on. Mm. Um, something that's, well, first of all, I just want to say that was, thank you for that introduction. That was beautiful. And I'm so happy to be here at UCSB and part of this program and with PICO who is not only um, someone I've treasured being in conversation with, but also is in the book. So it's very <laughs> special for, for this conversation to be happening. Um, I think something interesting about that question is, um, I, and I think it would probably be true for all of us, that the answer we would give to a reflection, a really searching reflection about the spiritual background of our childhood is going to be different any day. Yeah. Um, and just the way you... You turned the question um, of just pointing out those contradictions. Um, you know, t- just takes me down a slightly different road. Um, 
Yes, I mean, my my grandfather was this towering religious figure of my childhood. Um, and there were overt things I was learning about God from him. Um, and God was love, but God was scary. And heaven was the place we all wanted to go, but it was kind of mean and small, right? I mean, even Methodists weren't getting in. <laughs> and I'm not making that up. Um, and yet my grandfather, in his person, was so, as you say, lusty, and um, there was an integrity about how he carried his convictions so passionately. There was something admirable about that, even if you disagreed with him. And he was funny, and he had a great big mind, but he had a second-grade education. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing that I started thinking about in the writing of the book is about... Um, how that contradictory experience of him, but also the contradictions that were alive in my family. There were, you know, my grandfather, I think, had a good mind, but he had never been invited or trained to ask questions. I mean, he, his Bible was marked up in the most amazing way. But I, I think questions were fearful things for him. And in, in my family, um, you know, there, there were also, my father had been adopted and there were, there were questions that we, weren't in, that we weren't invited or permitted to ask. And so um, I, I think that the, that the spiritual background of my childhood was, um, had a lot to do with that. And I, I think that spiritual life um, for all of us, has a lot to do with questioning. And somehow, for me, the way questions were suppressed um, was, was painful in ways that I couldn't understand then, but it became this pursuit of mine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And also, beyond that, very, very human. You know, I think in a couple of your books, you use this wonderful sentence from Reinhold Niebuhr, who says man is his own vexing problem. Yes. And when I listen to you, I feel that religions are very either or, but humans are much more complicated. And yes. in some ways, your sense of theology has, seems to have less to do with God than with man. And that's a much bigger story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and theology is as much a discipline of, it's a conversation across time and generations that is as much a sophisticated analysis of the human condition. And in fact, you know, there's a sense in which in the fields of psychology, um, there's an analysis of parts of us. But I think theology and philosophy really are the disciplines in our midst that have delved into this matter of our contradictoriness uh, and our complexity and our beauty and strangeness and our possibilities. Yes. And yes, that was such a great discovery. And it's not what theology is known for (laughs) in public. And I think in this book you write, we are living, breathing both ands. And that seems, again, sort of the essence of the way you see the world. Yes. Um, Now, right after Oklahoma, you went to Brown, which I think is known as the most liberal of the Ivy League colleges. So already you were putting yourself kind of beyond red states and blue states, it seems. That must have been very different from Oklahoma. It was. I um, didn't really know much about Brown before I went there. And I think that, that liberal side of Brown, um, the kind of looseness, 
uh, allowed me to survive there because I, I, you know, for a couple of years I was finding my bearings. Um, but what I, I suppose what it did, you know, if I if I look at the big thing that stayed with me from that leap from Oklahoma to Brown is I had grown up in this contained world where everything made sense um, and it all cohered there in that place but when I left none of it made sense mm-hmm. and um, and then I went to another contained world <laughs> you know the world of an American university mm-hmm. with a long tradition and history and so I loved that and I found that so congenial and I completely reinvented myself um, but I do think it gave me this understanding that that's also what the world is like, that there are so many, so many different realities, um, and you often can't see the others um, or even imagine the others from inside, you know, wherever it is you're standing. Yeah. Probably people in Brown couldn't imagine Shawnee, Oklahoma, or no. vice versa. No, no. And then you threw yourself out of contained worlds entirely by going to live in Germany in, in the 1980s. Um, and I've, I've always loved the fact that you were a journalist, I believe, sending mm-hmm. reports to the New York Times and others. And then uh, you were working in the U.S. Embassy. And on the one hand, you saw that great surprise of the wall coming down. But on the other, you must have seen some limitations in the public world that sent you back into the inner world. Yes, and that's your language, that inner world, which I love. I love that so much. Yes, yes, and I was focused on the outer world, Um, the outer world as it is um, uh, defined and approached by politics, uh, which I found fascinating. And um, you know, I yeah, I was trained as a kind of breaking news journalist, Um, and it was riveting. It was an amazing time to be in Divided Berlin, which was really the fault line of that world, that geopolitical reality, which no one, no one at that moment guessed could vanish. Yeah. Um, so I, my, I did, I did a lot of things there, and in the last years of my time in Berlin, I was literally sitting. I was working for an ambassador who was a nuclear arms expert and literally sitting around these tables where people were moving those missiles around on a map of Europe. Um, one thing I started to experience that I eventually would, would, would have some moral questioning about, but I, I think, I, you know, I was so idealistic. I thought we were really there to save the world and make the world a better place. Um, there was this uh, very puzzling and unsettling disconnect between um, I, I was with people who had very large outer lives, like very large public lives, public persona, you know, people who could give brilliant speeches on nuclear weapons. Um, but I was up very close to that, and I also saw that these same individuals could have these tiny, impoverished inner lives, right? That they, they, they had poured all of their, um, of their energy and their effort and their accumulation of knowledge into the outer world and impoverished that. It, I mean, it not just, imp- I mean, didn't see it. Yeah. And I, I think that that was also t- true of the 20th century, that the 20th century didn't take the inner world mm. very seriously, right? Because it is messy. It's all this both and. And we kind of thought we could bracket it out and move beyond it, yeah. maybe. 
Yeah, no, Meister Eckhart has that wonderful line, if your inner life is rich, the outer work will never be puny. But it doesn't work the other way around. If your outer right. life is big, your inner life may shrivel. So you have to start with... Yes. That's probably why you went straight from Germany in the middle of the Cold War to Yale Divinity School. I did, but, but I had to think it through. I was, it was so confusing yeah. because it didn't make sense. I was, um, I was acquiring a really excellent resume you know, in course. Berlin. Yes. And um, it, 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 even, even as I kind of walked away from that fast track it didn't make sense to me and I was surprised to be thinking to be using language like spiritual and to be thinking about religion and taking that seriously in the world and I studied theology because uh, I, I, I had to I had to test this right I had to know that uh, that it could be serious and that it could address all of that complexity that I'd experienced, um, that it could be relevant. Mm. Took a lot of courage, clearly. And I'm wondering, if, if you don't mind, whether there were members of your family around there who either applauded you for going back into the world of theology or were disappointed that you threw over this very successful career in the world. Uh, y- yes. Um, yeah, my, my father really um, w- was so happy with... Um, that diplomatic, that journalistic and diplomatic mm. path, and um, just didn't, didn't, never understood. I mean, to mm. this day, doesn't understand mm. what I did, mm. and um, yeah, I fi- has found it disappointing, which mm. is this is a sad thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking today. The coming down of the wall is a perfect metaphor for everything you've been doing ever since, isn't it? It's, it's perfect <laughs> that? that you witness that because it's bringing down the divisions between people and finding the Wow, I never, I never thought about it that way. No, nor did I till today, <laughs> even though I've been listening to you all, for all these years. Yeah. And when I read your books and when I listen to your programs, the kind of words that come up again and again are doubt and surprise. And I feel that both of those must be really important to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the surprise a minute mm-hmm. ago of the wall. Um, yes. Yes, I mean, um, it, you know, this is this is a bit glib, but it's still true that the only thing, in fact, that is certain in life is that the next thing that happens will surprise us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the language of surprise, um, maybe even more than doubt, uh, or just a willingness to be surprised. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. is a great virtue. And it's a great virtue when we approach other people, strangers. Mm. Um, it's not it's not really the way we get trained. Um, we kind of get trained and educated to arm ourselves mm. with who we are and with representing that. And there's a place for that. But... Um, but to walk through the world open to being surprised and open to being surprised by, uh, by people who are very different from us mm. um, opens all this possibility. And it's also more pleasurable mm. than walking through the world armed yes. and ready to judge yes. and thinking yes. you know everything. That's a heavy burden to bear, knowing everything. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And I'm guessing, I mean, all that led right into the fact that from the beginning of your radio show, you've stressed people's stories and their experience as much as their beliefs. And I think you say in your first book wonderfully, 
we, not, we don't have to talk about the truth. We can talk about my truth. Yes. And I was thinking how if you tell me I'm a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever, that kind of closes me out unless I'm a member of that. But if you tell me your story, I'm let in, and I find that common ground. And it seems like so much of your work is about making contact with the other. I mean, yes. breaking down the hard and fast. Maybe it's soft and slow instead. Mm. Um, but... but from the outset, it seems, you've been trying to find that place in all your guests that um, is most open and that everybody can relate to. And that's why you begin by asking about their childhoods. Yes. Yeah? Um, yes, because that, um, that place, you know, that spiritual background of our childhood, and everybody has one. Um, it's not about whether you went to church or synagogue. It may be. Uh, but expansively understood is a soft searching place. Mm. It's a place where mm. questions are alive, where confusions are alive. Um, and again, that's, um, it's not a, a place in ourselves that we sink down to very often in public or that we show in public. Mm. But the, the thing about that question that's so, that is kind of magic for me is um, if, you, if you start your inquiry there, if you, you know, where you plant a conversation, where a conversation begins is really important. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it sets a tone. Um, and if you plant it in that soft searching place, then, then you can move forward in that spirit, even as you move into the realm of ideas and knowledge and yeah. convictions. Yeah. So someone's uh, starting in a vulnerable place, yes. which, is, which is wonderful, mm -hmm. which is where I'm most able to make contact. And you have this wonderful quote, I think Sherwin Newland might have shared it with you from Philo of Alexandria. Yes. Be kind, because everybody is fighting a huge battle, something yes. like that. Yes. And that seems to be animating a lot of your conversations. That, yes, um, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Mm. Um, that, you know, that is something that you can... Like I, I, I have that on my wall in my office. It's yeah. something that you can write down in your journal. Um, it's 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 something that you can take a breath and say to yourself, even when you are with, um, you know, in in the midst of one of life's many encounters with someone unpleasant. Um, but to remind yourself that they are fighting some kind of battle that you can't see and can't know. And, and you know, you, we know that's true. It's true. Yeah. We say it, and we know it's true of ourselves. We know it's true of everyone we know well. Um, and it, 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 it creates a bridge, or it, it's, it softens. Yeah. No, and in fact, you were saying on our way over here that there are old truths, but there are also old truths that we've forgotten. And that's one of them, because it sounds so self-evident. Yes. But we go through life pushing everyone aside as if we never knew it. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the sentences I really like in the new book is, I think faith is a verb. Is, mm. is that right? Yes, yes. Um, and it seems like this book, maybe even more than any of the others, is about taking your ideas and putting them into practice, bringing them to the streets. Would you, would you say you're ever more interested in that? Yes, and um, uh, people have been asking me... Uh, these last few days, like, how do I define wisdom? Because even though I wrote a book with the word wise in the title, I don't ever say this is wisdom. Right. I mean, in some ways, the whole thing is a meditation on that, but it's a, it's, it's, I'm never kind of direct attacking it. But, but to that point, I, um, uh, I think to me, one, um, there, there are many 
breeding grounds of wisdom. There are many qualities that it has, but I, I think one core aspect of wisdom, when you experience it in another human being, is that, that there is an integrity, a connection between um, inner life and outer presence in the world. Mm. Um, you know, knowledge is something you can possess. Intelligence is something you, we can point mm-hmm. at someone and say, that's an intelligent person. Uh, but to me, w- w- and wisdom is, is, is also, it's a, it's a possession, but it's a possession that is applied, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, so, so the litmus test of wisdom is not just mm-hmm. what is contained in that person, but their imprint on the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's true that um, all these, these years of this cumulative conversation to me that I mean, the point of learning to speak together differently is learning to live together differently. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that interested in faith or spiritual life um, that, that doesn't have a practice about it, right? That's mm-hmm. not put into practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think, I think you quote the great um, old physicist Freeman Dyson. Mm-hmm. He's always had this line I love, which is, I'm not a believing Christian, but I'm a practicing Christian. Yes, right. That's the heart yeah. of it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think Stephen Batchelor, again, the questioning Buddhist, says something about Buddhism mm-hmm. is, is not what you believe, it's what you do. Yes. And I think those are simple formulations, but they open up this whole yes. universe. Um, because, you know. And I also think that, that that assertion is an antidote to what went wrong with religion, with public religion mm. in this country. Mm. Um, and perhaps in other places, but you know, religion as a matter of positions and issues and arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to me, that whole phenomenon was about religious voices squeezing themselves into political boxes and political modes of discourse in order to be heard, but in the process, distorting um, you know the, the message that they were sending mm-hmm. be, beyond d- d- distorting. Um, what the essential truth of what they were supposed to be representing beyond recognition. In fact, taping the deepest part of us and making it the shallowest sometimes. And, and I'm guessing it was witnessing all that that moved you to, to embark on the show and feel that, as, as you've written often, there's this vast group of us in this country, almost a silent majority, mm. who care about these issues, but we don't want to be fundamentalists, we don't want to be new atheists. We want these questions to be alive. And yes. is that part of the animation behind your... Hope starting the program? Yes. And, you know, I, I, I have just become more, more and more acutely aware of how uh, in American culture, we, we hand over our imagination and our deliberation uh, about everything to, you know, we, we set up these competing poles. And, and, and religious voices have played into that same dynamic as well. Um, you know, any important issue that we have to take up, we, we create the sides. Um, but we know that in life, it, it, rarely work, like, it rarely works that way, either in ourselves or in anyone we know, that, uh, I mean, the, the people who actually have absolute certainty, absolutely no questions left, you know, not a breath of curiosity, even just about 
you know, those people that, that, that position on the other side is so crazy. How can they think that way? Who would really like to understand why they think that way? I mean, so we hand over our deliberation to these, to almost a caricature of, of the deliberation. Um, and we have to take it back, right? Um, and, and I, and I, you know, I, I don't know if there's such a thing as the center. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I believe that there's a center. And, and I also think, you know, I think most of us have lots of contradiction in our own, even if we have a position. Um, but on any important subject, um, left of center, right of center, I think all the way up to those extreme poles that we let frame the discussion, uh, there are people who have some questions left alongside their answers. Mm-hmm. And that is the reality. And I, I, I think that we need to claim the power of that vast middle and heart of our life together. Yeah. I mean, that's the open space and that's where change can happen, I think. And yes. two of my favorite of your recent guests who make a cameo appearance in the book are the Vatican astronomers. Yes. <laughs> literally men of faith and men of science. Yes. And one of them has this lovely line speaking to just what you were saying a minute ago, which is the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. Yes. And somebody who really is living in faith is living half the time in doubt. I mean, that's as much a part of their practice as, as the, the surrender. It's just the certainty that means that there's no room for God or whatever word you want to put to it. Yeah, and, um, and even in, um, you know, there's something human and life-giving about acknowledging, about letting contradictions be, like yeah. letting paradox yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's part of our vitality. Yeah. I mean, I would even say, so those astronomers are Jesuits. Like uh, most, I think, Almost all the astro- Vatican astronomers across history have been Jesuits, and uh, you know there are like 32 objects on the moon named after Jesuit astronomers, <laughs> and uh, and there's there's a wonderful irony that um, where they have their uh, headquarters or their their laboratory um, is was the summer home of the Pope who who called out Galileo, <laughs> uh, and we never hear that part of we never hear how that story ended yeah. up. Um, but anyway, um, and of course we have a Jesuit pope now. And I actually think Pope Francis is a really wonderful example of, um, you know, he has not actually changed major doctrines, right? He he actually represents uh, much of the same doctrine that Pope, the pope Benedict before him represented. Mm, interesting. Uh, but in his person, he embodies that... Uh, Commitment to practice, commitment to practicing and living uh, the deepest virtues, mm-hmm. which, which often stand in a kind of creative uh, or even frustrating tension with mm-hmm. the doctrines. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, his boldness, and, but I think that, you know, spiritual, well, he, he, human vitality and spiritual life is, is made up of those kinds of tensions. I mean, being alive is made up of those kind of tensions. And mm-hmm. there is something so um, so courageous and humble yeah. and inspiring about uh, a, a religious leader who will just let that show. Yes. yes, Exactly. I was going to say what makes him so mighty is the fact he seems so humble. Yeah. And as you were saying before, he's so ready to say, 
I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm in no position to judge. Yeah. I'm just another struggling person. And I think, again, of a line with everything you've been saying, I feel that with your guests, you're often talking about doubt or suffering or imperfection, mm-hmm. because imperfection is the definition of humanity, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's our times of crisis when we really have to wonder what is going to carry us up. Would you say that that's often something that you're intrigued by because it leads to Yes, and it's, it's a... So, so there is this great puzzle about life that things go wrong. Right? Like perfection yeah. can be a goal, but it's never a destination. Yeah. Um, what is it? Oh, I think... Um, Rachel Naomi Remen, who's a physician, you know, mm. an interview a long time ago, she said, you know, perfectionism is the booby prize. Um, um, so, so there is this, and you know, this has given rise across history to the whole theodicy debate. Like, if there, how could there be a good God, or how could the universe, the balance of the mm. universe, be good when there's so much suffering? And so that question is there, and it's real and reasonable. Um, but then there is also this paradox that we are so often made by what would break us. Um, mm. That precisely that, and I and I think this is where where our spiritual traditions, where where spiritual life is so redemptive and necessary, because this is the place in life that says. Um, not you know that honors the fact that there's darkness, but also says. And you can find meaning right there, right? Mm. Not, mm. It's not overcoming it. It's mm. not beyond it. Yeah. It's not in spite of it. Yeah. Right in the midst of that, there is something to learn. There are ways to grow. Um, it, what goes wrong doesn't have to define us, but, I mean, you know, again, to come back to what wisdom is, as I've seen it, um, it's people who who walk through whatever darkness, whatever hardship, uh, whatever imperfection, and uh, you know, unexpected catastrophes, or you know, the like the, the 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 huge and the and the ordinary losses of any life, who who walk through those and integrate them into wholeness on the other side that you're whole and and healed not fixed you know not in spite of those things but because of how you have um let them be part of you yes you have this beautiful line in your book i think we we learn to walk by falling down and it's yeah. a perfect reminder that we can't do anything unless yeah. we're willing to fall. Really, one of the most moving moments um, I can remember in my life was I went with the Dalai Lama up to a fishing village that had been completely devastated by the tsunami. 19,000 people died there. The whole place was in ruins. And when he got there, hundreds of people were lined up along the road. Just They were so touched that he'd come to seek them out. And then when he got out of the car, he went and he blessed them and he held them and he gave them lots of inspiring words. Uh, you know, look to the future. That's how you can honor the people you've lost and build up your community as your country built up itself after World War II. And all the kind of things you would hope a man of wisdom would say. And then when he turned around, I saw there were tears in his eyes. And I thought, that's what wisdom really is. Um, the ability to pass on exactly the right kind of truth, but to feel the suffering yeah. and, and the helplessness before it, and, and to be a human in the midst of being a wise man. 
Um, yes. And I think one of the bravest things that you do in your writing is, is I, I'm guessing you're a fairly shy person despite your position in the public. And you write about the difficulties in your own life. I think in your first book you mentioned that you suffered through periods of clinical depression mm-hmm. and you're, you're divorced to the, from the father of your children. And in this new book, um, you talk a little bit about your separation from your father. Mm-hmm. And clearly that's something that's still with you every day. Yes, um, yes. Yes. Um, I, uh, that was a hard thing about writing the book. And, um, and I... I, it came uh, late. Um, f- first of all, just that I had to get out of the mode of being the person who asked the questions and who's drawing other people out, but mm-hmm. to realize that I was... Because what I wanted to share is this cumulative conversation that happens. So I have these great conversations, and then these voices come into conversation in my head. But I, I had to... And I, I mean, I know you'll understand this because I, I'm still in the mode of a journalist, but I had to actually, I had to realize that I still, I was the connective tissue making sense of, yes. of this cumulative yes. conversation. But then, uh, you know, I had a really, I had, the, the, the book just, it, 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 it couldn't, it didn't come alive for a long time. And I realized actually, I, also had to uh, do what I ask other people to do, which I know makes you know makes ideas come to life and also makes them listenable, makes them land in the imaginations of the listener with vitality, which is to really walk that line, that intersection between what you know and who you are. And yeah, and then I had to actually. You know, I had to be honest, even just with myself, mm. um, about the you know the hard, the sad parts of my life and mm. those things that I wrestle with. And uh, so there's the there's the middle chapter of the book, which is really important to me, is the chapter on love. Yeah. Um, I really believe that in this. 21st century where we are uh, where our lives, our well-being our, our survival our flourishing is linked to the well-being of others in a way and others on the other side of the planet as well as the other side of the city in a way that is unprecedented in human history that uh, that love as something practical and robust and muscular, not romantic uh, love in all its fullness is is maybe the the only calling high enough for us to rise to this occasion. Um, but uh, love is also absolutely the hardest thing, and and it's hard it's hard in our intimate spaces. So you know, to be honest about what that challenge is collectively. Um, I had to really be honest about what that challenge is close to home, mm-hmm. and uh, and so what what's and and yeah, I mean, my life of love is um, there's a lot of beauty in it, and there's been a lot of failure in it, mm-hmm. and I think that that's uh, I think that's true for everybody with infinite variety. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I mean, it's, I think, an especially difficult thing for somebody who's sort of in the limelight and uh, who's regarded by many people as a spiritual guy to, yeah, that's right. to render <laughs> herself so, so vulnerable. Yeah. But I think that's, that's the power of it because it reinforces you're not somebody with all the answers. You have no. questions. When, when I listened to you on the show and when I was talking to you on your show, your questions sound completely genuine. You were really trying to find out, uh, yeah. to engage with a person, walk into the mystery with that person. And... Um, and it's wonderful that you have none of the answers in advance or none of, not all the answers in your life because that gives the, the life to it. And I notice, um, I think one of your most recent shows broadcast was with the poet David White. Yes, yes. Um, and, and one of the lovely qualities you bring into many discussions is motherhood. And I think you said your second child is about to go off to college and suddenly yes. six months from now it's going to be an empty house. Right? It's going to so, be a whole new world. Yeah. Right. And, and so... So I am all about de-romanticizing virtues. And so the, the, the bad news is that if we tell the truth about love, um, we're, it's a hard truth. It's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, love um, crosses the chasms between us and it brings them into relief mm-hmm. like nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good news is uh, when we think about something lofty like love if you know imagining that as a public virtue which by the way all the great social reformers have done right that was that was martin luther king's dream the beloved community uh, that's the unfinished business now um the the changes in laws and policies you know flowed out of that um but we do get to we we get to take seriously our um concrete experiences with these things, right? So if I'm reflecting on love uh, as, a, as a, a lens for us to reimagine our economic and racial disparities or even to put that in different language, you know, our belonging to each other. And, and if, 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 if what we're working, if, if, our, if our starting point, if our vision is our belonging to one another, you know, how, how do we then change the structures and the laws? Like, how do, how, you know, what different um, strategies and visions flow out of that different starting point? Um, but then, you know, so, so to be practical, to go into that in a, in, a, in a realistic and powerful way is to really analyze, like, what do I know about love mm. in my ordinary life? And in fact, I know a lot. And um, and a lot of what I know is challenging, but knowledge is a form of power. And I think you write, in the end, we'll be measured not by what we've accomplished, but by how we love. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you refer to motherhood as fierce love, which I really love. Yes, the fiercest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's so interesting to me that, I mean, even as you're looking at the hard stuff of the heart and the spirit and the world, the atmosphere of your show is really positive. I feel it's always looking forwards and and, and tilted towards hope, and you write a lot about hope in this new book. But one of the things I love, for example, is that you have one of your guests talking about Hurricane Katrina, and all of us associate that with dispossession and the fractures in our society. He points out it was the greatest event of civil giving in the history of the United States. In other words, just to speak to what you've been saying, people reached out to the other more than at any other time in history. And I think again and again, even in the face of public disaster, you're highlighting these points of hope. 
that, of course, the regular media tends to jump over or, or to put on page A14 a bit. That's right, um, yeah, in a little sidebar. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, journalism, um, as it's come down to us from the 20th century, um, is incredibly sophisticated at analyzing what is, you know, the crisis, the catastrophe, the corruption, mm-hmm. the failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those realities are, are are there and need to be reckoned with, but they aren't they aren't the whole story. They're never the whole story. Um, somebody I interviewed recently, it hasn't been on the air yet, is Rebecca Solnit. Do you know her yes, work? Yes, I do. I know her. Yes. Again with Hurricane Katrina, I mean, she's been doing around this tenth anniversary recently. She did some you know beautiful writing about the, the story of. Well, precisely this, uh, this idea that we're made by what would break us. I mean, some of the incredibly redemptive trans- mm-hmm. transformations mm-hmm. that are still ongoing, but that have come out of how that community reckoned with what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't, we don't tell that story with the same kind of rigor mm-hmm. and seriousness. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of my... You know, if I, you know, if I have a calling, it's, you know, it's just kind of shining a light on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not making this up. I mean, mm-hmm. this is part of the reality. Yeah. And it's actually often in a crisis that people most forget themselves in the best way. And suddenly, without yes. even thinking about it, scoop somebody off the railway track or, or whatever. Yes. Um, right. When the worst happens uh, in, in the world, uh, there's always a, a part of that story where where people rise to the occasion. Mm. I mean, I love, um, and and this is in the book, um, I think about this so much, uh, Dorothy Day, Mm. um, who is such a great example of, uh, you know, even when we, saints, like none none of the actual people who have been sainted were cartoon cut-out characters with with perfect lives. I mean, they had rough edges and... uh, and they, they knew the darkness in the world and in themselves. Um, so Dorothy Day had this really messy life, um, a beautiful life. Um, and I, I see the, you know, a defining moment for her, again, coming back to this spiritual origin of questions, where she's an eight-year-old girl in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, living in Oakland, and watches uh, people just emerging from that devastation and watches also all the adults around her start caring for strangers in a way she's never seen before. And, you know, with the clear-sightedness of a child, you know, she sees that somehow they knew how to do this all along. Mm -hmm. And she asks this question, why can't we live this way all the time? And I think that her life... Uh, was one long, you know, she walked into that question and the Catholic mm-hmm. worker was part of her answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I, I love that question. I think we could ask that kind of question, you know, that could be like just a spiritual discipline uh, in very ordinary moments, in very ordinary weeks when... And this happens to us all the time, and we kind of don't honor it in a way by not taking it seriously. Kindnesses, you know, little moments of kindness from a stranger that make your day. You were having a bad day, and suddenly you're not anymore. And just, um, you know, letting that question 
Why can't we live this way all the time when we show the best of ourselves? Letting that animate us. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a variation on the age-old universal spiritual principle of having a skull on your desk. In other words, realizing time is limited. Yeah. We may have six months, we, may have, we don't know. But if you are given such a sentence or bear that in mind as monks in every tradition do, then instantly you think, tomorrow, if I only have a few days left, what am I going to do? Extend myself entirely to somebody else. Give myself only to what sustains me. Think about what's important. Tune out the Kardashians, etc. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a wonderful focusing device, and it's a variation exactly it, because... We are all going to die, and if we remember that, we may be that much more thoughtful in our actions in the yeah. meantime. And one thing that you stress again and again, I think one of the things I most appreciate about your show, it's very rigorous, and at points uh, in the book you say, well, words like tolerance or diversity, even love, have slightly lost their meaning because we throw them around yeah. all the time, yeah. they're attenuated. But you stress that hope is not the same as optimism. No. And optimism can lead us into the clouds. Yeah, I, I never yeah. use the word optimism. Yeah. And I know I have met people who use optimism the way I use the word hope. But, but for me, um, optimism sounds like kind of wishful thinking, mm. you know, we'll yeah. hope for the best. Yeah. Uh, we'll see the sunny side. Yeah. And for me, hope, uh, uh, hope as a force, as a resource, um, is reality-based, uh, it sees the darkness. It takes that seriously. It sees uh, the possibility for good and redemption and takes that seriously. And it, it's a choice. Yeah. And it's also, um, it's an action. It's, it's something mm-hmm. you put into practice. Um, and I, I, I do love this, this convergence of... Um, of our need for virtues in the world, of our need for tools to pin aspiration to action, and also what we're learning through neuroscience about how what you practice you become. And that goes for being more patient, being more hopeful, being more compassionate, mm-hmm. just like it goes for any other skill. Um, and so I think, you know, you can, be, you can choose to be hopeful, which is a more courageous, far more courageous hope, uh, choice than cynicism. Yes. I mean, cynicism is really easy. Um, is never surprised or disappointed um, and doesn't lift a finger to change anything. Yeah. And, um, but hope can be, uh, you know, we can, we can develop spiritual muscle memory. Yes. Uh, the more we do it, the more we... And it, it's really not about feeling it. It doesn't have to be about feeling it in the first instance, but it can become instinctive. Yeah. Yes, I think you say it's a choice that can become a habit that becomes spiritual muscle memory, yeah. which is exactly the... Dorothy Day phenomenon. And in my limited experience, Desmond Tutu or Martin Luther King or Dalai Lama, all saying that. Desmond Tutu begins one of his books and he says, I'm not an optimist, I'm not an idealist, Mm. I'm a realist. And that's you have to begin with reality to to change it. Well, I've got to ask you, as you talk about hope and spirit and intimacy and all these, the most precious stuff of life that's not always in the public domain, um, do you have uh, other pressures put upon you about whom you choose as guests or what kind of things you say? Do people ever say to you, well, this is not going to reach 10 million people, this is too subtle or thoughtful or something? Uh, uh, yeah, well, there was a lot of that in the early years. Mm. Um, even, even, just, even just doing an hour-long conversation with the same person, even on yeah. public radio, yeah. um, <laughs> some some uh, seasoned producer saying to me, uh, 
people would actually have to listen to this. <laughs> like, what, like, you know, they couldn't pick up their, their dry cleaning while this is on because they, they couldn't miss five minutes. And um, so it's strange that there's something so countercultural, even just about that. Um, I, you know, we tell, we tell ourselves all these stories about how we have such limited attention spans mm. and how we have an appetite for entertainment. And, and I think that there's truth to that. We have been trained to be entertained and, and to, to need uh, things to be efficient. But, um, but I also think that this profusion of, I mean, all the things that come at us, in some ways reawakens our need to carve out at least some little space where we can go deep and be quiet mm. and be reflective. And, um, you know, there's language in public, in media about people would say, well, if you're having these serious, com- these big conversations, it would have to be destination listening. This was in like the early 2000s. And they basically said, you know, there's, people don't do destination listening. They do destination TV, but they don't do destination radio. And that was kind of true, but the miracle in the meantime is podcasting, which creates the opportunity for destination listening. And we have so many millennials in our space who, um, I mean, I don't ever remember seeing a radio when I was between the ages of, you know, 18 yeah. and 25. Mm. Um, but but these new generations they have they have audio habits and they have these portable devices and and so they can actually carve out that space and decide you know and they can even multitask so I mean you can <laughs> run and listen to the <laughs> to the long form in depth conversation um, so yeah it's kind of countercultural um, but these days I don't know, people aren't telling me too much these days that I can't do what I want to do, which is a nice place to get to. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard one. That's a vindication of everything that yeah. we believe in. And, you know, I often think of your show as having more poetry than anything in it, oh. not just because you feature poets, but more because poetry slows us down and your yes. show it stretches our attention span. And poetry is really about romancing the mystery and makes one think that anything that diminishes mystery is a kind of blasphemy. It takes us into that imaginative space that you've been yes. describing where we don't know what's going and we're searching and that's the excitement of it. Um, but I also think you're sort of redefining intimacy. And one, so two things that I notice in the show. One, you will have many guests I've never heard of before and they're completely transfixing and I think, why have I not heard of this person before? Right. The second is to have people we've all heard about but to shine a light on sides of them we, we never would have guessed at. Mm. And I'm thinking, for example, Martin Sheen was on your show uh, a few months ago. You didn't ask him a single question about Charlie Sheen. You didn't no, ask him any question about the dramas around Apocalypse Now. You asked him about his belief, his action, his, his, his life as a father and a, and a husband. And it was, it was a revelation um, that somebody in the public eye as he is could have such a rich inner life and have kept it going yes. through hills and valleys for... 60 years. So I think it must be fun when you're talking to more prominent people. Yo-Yo Ma would be another example where mm. you're trying to find things that they wouldn't otherwise be talking about. Yes, but you know, I don't find that that's so hard to dig up. I mean, mm. the fact that Martin Sheen has been arrested I don't know, yes. <laughs> 75 yes. times yeah. for, because he for his social justice work yeah. which, um, 
I mean, this is just a huge part of him, but mm. it's not something anybody ever asked him about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yo-Yo Ma, um, his people, uh, you know, the people around him, were very um, concerned, talking to my producer before the interview, about, you know, he, we didn't, he didn't want to talk about religion, or they didn't want him to talk about religion. Um, I mean, they said he didn't want to talk about religion, but then he then he got on, and you know, but he's the one who talked about the priesthood of the musician. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, it's not it, it's. I mean, the one thing I do is, uh, I just take a close look at somebody's life yeah. and their yeah. writing, and I mean, it's not. I'm I'm very rarely uh, digging something out that was hidden. Right. It's just that nobody ever asked about it. Yeah, yeah. Your priorities are different from that of the mainstream media, yeah. which is the grace of the show. Would, did, would you have thought that I sh- would ask him about Charlie Sheen? No, I was so grateful you didn't, because there are a million places we can go for that. Yeah, we've, I mean, it was all—it was all in the news right at that moment, I and I did it. I mean, it did run through my mind that that the obvious thing to ask him about would be Charlie Sheen and that I would never do that because yeah. because I'm talking to a father whose son is in pain and yeah. uh, and that would shut down the conversation yeah. and plus it would just be wrong it would yeah. just be intrusive and shallow I mean you have actually a lot of wisdom in your book that all of us can use about exactly what avenues will shut out conversation just in daily Mm. life and which will open them up. And you say that if there are certain things that will put somebody on the defensive and that's the end of the interaction, there are others that will open them up and then you just go deeper and deeper. So in some ways, I mean, I've learned to be a human being by listening to your program and thinking about what are the ways when I meet somebody tomorrow, I can try to draw that person out rather than to you know, create the divisions mm. between them. And I, I was thinking over these last few days and months um, whether you have any, whether you feel there are other places that you can turn in the media for similar kind of sustenance. I thought, well, Bill Moyers was doing something similar to this and he's going to be in Santa Barbara soon. But are there inspirations you get apart from your reading of books? And... Um, I, you know, these days... Uh... I don't take in media the the way I used to, which may be true of a lot of us. Yeah. Uh, I I actually think podcasting is wonderful. Um, I I podcast a lot of things from BBC Radio Four, mm. which you you know I'm sure mm-hmm. you know, mm. um, which is kind of the NPR of the UK, but yes. it's so much more. I mean, for one thing, what's interesting about Radio Four is that practically the entire country listens to it, right? You know, so yes. there's this, there is a true cultural, convert, there are true cultural reference points. Um, I tend to be, you know, what I don't have any appetite for, I just have so little appetite for, like, just kind of straightforward news coverage anymore. Because it's demoralizing, it's not the whole story, uh, journalists don't mean they're not doing it to demoralize us but in a in a 24-7 news environment where we are barraged by the mm. same piece of terrible news mm. the same uh, tragic photo of somebody frozen in the worst moment of their lives and we are not getting any information about how they're going to get up the next day and keep living um, 
we internalize that as the bottom line, you know, the norm. And it's not supposed to be, right? News right. is supposed to be the extraordinary yes. event. Yeah. But it's mostly the extraordinarily terrible events. Yes. And we don't, we, don't, we don't internalize them as extraordinary. We internalize them as the reality. Yes. And so I, li- I love, you know, science news that is actually telling us what yes. we're, you know, a story yeah. of what we're learning about ourselves. And it's, it's often so strange and, you know, unexpected. I mean, that's where you have this real surprise and there's a lot of beauty in it. And, mm-hmm. and even if it's, even if it's um even if it's hard news it's uh it's told in a complex way um, i like um i I love a lot of the journalism around food now mm-hmm. and there's some great b b c and there's a there's a b b c they they have the most boring titles i mean the fact that everyone can hear everyone hears it means that they don't have to work at all to make it uh, yeah, they're, they're cool. So it's like the food program, but it's this brilliant program um, about, and it's really not about food. It's about how, um, it, it, and and you know, in the book, I mean, I ended up writing a lot about food and us as creatures who eat, and how that's really what's going on in Genesis, and and you know, the biblical scholar that says, you know, if you really look at those stories, it's not about human domination, and you know, one thing is human beings are the only ones who know that other creatures have to eat too and um, uh, I mean food is about sustenance and food is one of these a perfect example of this uh, you know that wisdom can be something you accumulate it can be new insights new discoveries Um, but sometimes wisdom comes in the form of relearning something that we knew forever and then forgot Mm. and um, you know in the, in the food, in the area of the entire subject of how we eat and how we grow and raise what we eat, which has all these economic implications, uh, it's also, that is also a reminder that progress, that innovation is not always progress. Yeah. And um, so we walked down this long road to completely distorting not just our agriculture but our own bodies. And so now we are just, you know, painfully pulling that back, <laughs> rediscovering like, you know, uh, local food, like rediscovering local food, uh, rediscovering real food. It's incredible. Um, so, so I don't know. So I guess like this is the kind of news I like because this actually is telling the story of our time as much as those stories of crisis. So that's kind of what I take in. Yeah. And one of the inherent challenges of your job must be that often those people who know the most and have most to impart are the most private. And the the quiet voices are the ones that that you actually have to go and find because yes. they're not the ones we're hearing on the media uh, and the people who know most about faith say least about it. Is that your yes. experience? Or, yes. Um, uh, it's a real irony uh, that um, um, it, the people who are changing the world in good ways are often have a quality of humility about them. They don't have publicists. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't branded themselves. Um, I mean, there are there are people who are changing the world in good ways who are also good at branding. But but there are a lot of um, I would say I would say the you know there's this notion of you know the change that happens in the margins, which 
is where real social change, the human change that makes social change possible, has always begun. And it begins out of sight, and it's not taken seriously. You know, the fact that nobody had thought of it before is means that nobody is going to jump up and down and say, "Oh, great idea." Um, so, so though, and and that this, I think, I, I think of this as a spiritual discipline, especially in a world where we have so much information. Um, this spiritual discipline of of going out and looking for. Um, those redemptive parts of our of our common story that precisely because they are so beautiful and true and humble are not going to jump up and down and say, hey, pay attention to me. Um, listening for those voices uh, that will not shout. And it's precisely, you know, the, 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 the goodness that they bring is precisely in that fact. And it's also why we have to we have to listen for them. Uh, they will not throw themselves in front of microphones. Yeah. No, and I think one of the, <coughs> the exhilarating things in this new book are there are a lot of very young voices. Yeah. There are more women, I think, than ever before. There's a greater diversity of um, backgrounds in it. Um, <coughs> and I'm going to open it up in a minute, but just my last question would be, what is hardest for you in, in your life or in your work? What is hardest for yeah. me? Hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes, I think people sometimes imagine that because I soak up all this wisdom, I must be really <laughs> special, as extra wise mm. myself. <laughs> and in fact, I, you know, I have a life like everyone else. And I think, you know, I think parenting is just this, you know, unfolding experience of humility <laughs> where you, you, you learn all the time what you don't know or what you might have done better um, and, I, and my life is no different you know I mean I mean a lot of weeks uh, you know my moments of great accomplishment is when I manage to get the recycling out on the right day right I mean so uh, I think um, you know m- m- maybe I would say at this point in my life um it is it is precisely that uh, wanting to hold myself a bit more to uh, um, letting myself take in um, even I ended up stressing in the book, and like I had to keep reminding myself to stress that um, talking about wisdom and virtue that these are pleasurable things, right? That life is better, that your step is lighter, uh, that pleasure and delight itself is a virtue. Um, and I, you know, I'm kind of intense, right? I've been kind of intense in my life. And I, I talk at the book, I mean, my childhood was made me that way too. And it's been, it's also been a gift. Um, but I, uh, and I, so I've often I'm ta- I talk to young people a lot, and people in their 20s, and, and I say, you know, if there's one thing I wish someone would have said to me that I could have taken in is, you know, yes, you will be, you will be beset by doubts, right? You will be second-guessing yourself, and you, you'll think you're supposed to have things figured out. Um, but whatever is going on, n- know to take pleasure. Like, whatever there is to take pleasure in, do that. And I, and I think I'm talking to myself still when I'm, when I'm saying that. And uh, 
I actually think one of the great things about getting older, about you know, being in my 50s, I think somehow there's this... Uh, they say that, um, that when we're younger, our brains are tuned to novelty, to, mm. to, um, to be animated by novelty. But as you get older, um, you, you know, you're less tuned to novelty, and I, say, I would say more naturally attuned to, to kind of take pleasure in what is ordinary and habitual. And I think that's a great gift. Mm-hmm. So um, I am trying to, you know, really live into that. Mm-hmm. And also just, uh, I mean, it's so ironic because I have all these conversations about health and wholeness and trauma and healing and, you know, I mean, just, you know, getting, being rested and restored. Mm -hmm. Um, So my struggles um, are pretty, pretty basic. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell, by the way, what a good listener you are, because usually when I'm sitting in this chair, I say almost nothing, and you've got me babbling and babbling through this evening So, with your attentiveness. It's Thank you. It's a conversation. It's not an interview. It is. Um, so please, I'm sure you have many questions. We have microphones on either side, um, and please don't be shy. Hello, Krista. It's so nice to have you here. And my question to you is, what do you have for your daily practice to keep you in the mindset that you are of curiosity and vulnerability and just presence? What do I have as my... As a practice. Um, um, well, I, I would say a number of things... Um, and you know, it, it changed. It's been different at different points in my life. Um, I, I have a, a pretty serious yoga practice. I I don't think I I don't think the way I do yoga is especially spiritual. But for me, what it because I have I do like kind of athletic, sweaty yoga. But uh, but what is spiritual about that is getting me out of my head and into my body, and. Uh, and I just, I know my need of that now, in a way. And it just, just being literally grounded, walking on the earth. That's really, you know, one of the most important things I do now. I think um, the, the conversations themselves, uh, sometimes, I do, sometimes I, do, I do best when I'm, like, go into a conversation tired, in a way, because I... I am reminded that it's not about me, and I, I, I just surrender to like drawing energy from the other person and just being so present to them. Um, so there's a way that there's a way in which that experience actually gives me the again and again gives me um, supports me in doing it. I don't know how to. There's um, it's such an you know, to to really ask and invite someone to to n- not just tell their story, but I mean, do something a little bit more complicated than that. Tell their story, like talk about what they know and who they are. You 
you give them a gift. It's like the simplest thing in the world to do, but we just we don't we don't get given that gift very often. Um, and and then these these wonderful you know these riches come forth, and um, so that I mean that's a wonderful thing to be in that position with with other wonderful people, and so that kind of feeds me in and of itself. Thank you. Yeah. Krista, first, I want to thank you. I've been listening to your show for, I guess, a really long time because your kids were young. <laughs> and mine I used were to too. say my son is four. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. So, And it was before podcasts. But yeah. I think we downloaded it still then because I certainly didn't have an hour to listen to anything. Yeah. yeah. But um, I, I'm curious. I, um, when 45 years ago, I learned to meditate and I still practice it and I became a TM teacher. And we were told then that this is the beginning of the age of enlightenment and that life was going to change and that our consciousness of the world, you know, the whole consciousness of the world was changing. And, and then I watched that whole time. I watched things happen. And I personally see things... I, I listen to your show and I listen to wonderful other podcasts that are that like TED Talks and Radio Lab and all these wonderful things yeah. that talk about really cool great things that are to me indicate that the world is changing for the better. And I'm wondering, do you see that as well in like in the last in that sp- span of time have you seen or am I just looking through rose-colored glasses? <laughs> yeah. No. Um I I think the world I think the world can be getting better. I I think we I think we have to we have to all get behind that project, and I and I and I see it with a long view of time. Um, you know, kind of a beacon in the book is Teilhard de Chardin, um, who is this Jesuit paleontologist, who a um, hundred years ago was looking at the uh, discovering f- the fossil evidence of human physical evolution, and. Um, and he believed he, he he looked at those primitive fossil remains, and uh, imagined that uh, that humanity many you know this is a vast geologic span of time right but that that humanity m- many generations in the future would look at us spiritually now and see us as similarly similarly primitive. Um, I'm pretty fascinated by um, some thinking that um, that 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 the the planet right now, like kind of the the sweeping view of humanity at this moment in time, looks a lot like the picture we can uh, we can see now of what the teenage brain looks like, <laughs> which is uh, you know these flashes of brilliance and incredible advance. And creativity and uh, boldness, and at the same time, just incredible—you know—this incredible potential uh, for recklessness and destruction, and all—and all of that—that that, you know—that's all the story of us right now. So, I, I, I do, I do think we're in the adolescence of our species, um, and that, of course, is a time of great promise and great danger. Um, but I, 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 and again, just as we've been discussing here, I, I, I do think there's, there's so much um, initiative and innovation and goodness um, that, we, that we don't take seriously enough. And, and yes, I, I mean, I do believe we can 
we can rally behind this project of spiritual evolution. But we, we, have, to, we have to have a re- realistic sense of time yeah. and, and really realize that we are not anywhere near full possession of our powers. Which is, a, which is a relief, right? To take that in, it's a relief, right? Because if we think we're, we're like nearly grown up, then we say, well, we're, you know, we're not very impressive grown ups, but I mean, collectively. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Hi, Krista. Hello. Um, it's such a pleasure to meet you in person. Thank you. Finally, uh, I, your podcasts have been my companion for many years. I, w- I worked as a drapery installer for decades, and up and down the stepladder was your conversations <laughs> were my friends. Um, you know, uh, in the wonderful conversations that Pico has brought to our town, one of them that I remember was the translator Stephen Mitchell. Hmm. And during the question and answer period, like we're having right now, uh, a woman asked the question, she said, uh, Mr. Mitchell, you, you translate all these great works from all the great traditions. What is it you believe? And he instantly said, in a very calm tone, I don't believe in anything. <laughs> and, the, and it shot through the whole audience. And, and Pico didn't give any follow-up question. And it just sat with us. And so my question is, what would you have asked him? Oh, what would I have asked? I'm so glad you didn't say, what do you believe? That's, that's, a, that's a bad question. And what, and what do you make of the way that affected us? That, that, what, that what affected? The, the, way, the way that oh, that everyone. shot through us all, yeah. Was just, anyway. <laughs> so you were on the other end of this conversation? Yes, and I'll, I'll help you a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Because by chance I had dinner with Stephen last Saturday. And I was so excited, and I was saying, I'm about to talk to Krista Tippin. He said that he'd been on your show yeah, many. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, he spent 40 years in Zen practice, and Zen is about not believing anything. Yeah. Nothing is false, nothing is true. Yeah. Um, and he, he's translated the sutras in which they say, cultivate a mind that delights nowhere. So I think he really lives that sense of not hanging to any fixity because we live in a world of change. But that doesn't answer the question of what you would have asked us. Well, well so, so this, is just a, this is just a really simple technique, but um, obviously there's a lot inside those words, I don't believe anything. Um, and so I might, have, I might have done something really simple by saying, well, well you, know, you know, when you say that, what do you mean by that? Mm. Right? And which is actually a really good thing to do, even if you're in a kind of a charged conversation. Um, if somebody, so in this case, I think you were, everybody was just stunned because they expected some profound answer. And mm. in fact, that probably was a profound answer, yeah, but you needed so. to dig, yeah. and yes. it might have yes. taken another hour, which is probably <laughs> what you knew. Um, but even if you're in it, because, because we have all these loaded words, um, and belief is kind of, well, belief is just kind of hollowed out, actually, is the problem with that word. Um, but sometimes people say things, I mean, a lot in this culture, they say things and we think we know, you know, there are words that are fraught and, you, and, and their word gets dropped and we let it just trigger all these reactions, but we're actually not responding to that person or responding to this whole baggage. Um, and so just to say, um, what, do you, what do you mean when you use that word? I mean, maybe the word anything, I don't know. And I should say, for those of you who haven't read Krista's new book, the whole first section is called Words. 
Second section is flesh, third is love, fourth is faith, and fifth is hope. So you're not dodging the important stuff there, but there's a lot on words and how they take us away from the truth, maybe. Yeah, and Um, how powerful they are. My my question really uh, is based on uh, what do we take to be I, the pronoun I. And there's an Indian uh, thinker named Nisargadatta who um, usually says to people who come and talk to him, um, were you born? And the person immediately says, yes. And then he says, uh, how do you know? And he, he, he doesn't really press it to, to an unpleasant extent, but um, <clears throat> I could mean I was born on a certain <clears throat> date, or simply I am, and I don't know how long I have been. So to say to someone, uh, is there anything you believe in? I think it's usually reasonable to say, I believe that I exist. Because we're having a conversation. So I just wonder what you think about that idea that to say I was born, you know, it's not the same as I began. What's your thought? I don't know. That's deep. I think if you'd gotten me at the beginning of book tour, I might have felt, you know, when you said in the introduction that you went into that studio and you were so, you were flagging. So that, but I, I, I have not been flagging here because I knew you would, you would lift me up. Um, I don't know. That's, I mean, that is a real, I think, I actually think, um, I mean, one thing I say in the book is that I, um, I think questions are not you know, questions are very a question is a mighty use of words, and that uh, one of the things I think we get wrong in this culture is we think all questions need to be answered, and I I think that I I think it would it would behoove us to develop a practice of sometimes just let putting a question out in the room and dwelling with it, um, and you know that is the kind of question that just actually wants to be pondered. Uh, and uh, I have in the... Uh, there's a, a line of poetry from Elizabeth Alexander um, that I, I, it's in the book, but I, I quote it all the time. It's a, it's a question by way of poetry. Um, are we not of interest to each other? And, uh, you know, I love the thought of, like, you know, having that as an opening statement for a gathering of Congress and and not letting anybody respond. Just like letting that question roll around in the room. I think it would be a wonderful question for a lot of civic gatherings we have. How is that for dodging? (laughs) I think we have time for two more questions. So here and then there. Maybe this will be a little bit easier. Um, Krista, the the show, just love it. Thank you so much. I said, uh, hang draperies. I have a long drive to work, and I've listened for a long time, um, but maybe somewhat sporadic. And one day I was driving, and it was speaking of faith is now on being. Yeah. I'm curious, is there more to it than that? You know, what rebranding, what went into it, and what was oh, the... Yeah. What, what, you know, it kind of seemed like a big thing, but there it was. So, um, 
most of the public radio shows that you know that you think of as the staples had like 10 years as local shows where they found their voice and figured out what they were doing this show started in the early 2000s um and it just launched as a national show, which had to do with the changing economics of things, but it also had to do with, I think, the fact that this f- felt like an urgent... It was, it was immediately a national and global subject. I mean, you know. So, so and, oh, I just... I mean, I, I have a hard time listening to things we did, like, three years ago, because it, you know, it was such a rapid growth curve. And um, so the show kind of grew up in public. And at about the five-year mark... I mean, one thing that happened, uh, I, I actually felt that it was important in the early 2000s. It was the immediate post-9-11 years. We had an evangelical president in the White House and a lot of attention to that. Um, and I felt like it was really important to use the F word, right, and say, yes, this is public radio. Yes, we are speaking of faith. Um, but, but faith is one of those fraught words. And so it happened every day, every week. We had so many emails, you know, people saying, I turned off the radio 35 times until one day I was captive in the car and I realized this was not at all what I expected (laughs) because they expected proselytizing, inflammatory. Um, So I think what I wanted to do was kind of not let that word be taken captive and open imaginations. And I, I feel like maybe we, you know, I feel like we did that a little bit. But but at some point, your title should, that is not what a title should do. It should not, you know, it was hard to talk about the show. You had to talk about what it was not. And people said they had to do the same thing with their friends. The other thing that uh, I really wanted to honor is from the very beginning, we had all these people flood into this space, even when it was called Speaking of Faith, who were not people of faith, right? Or not in any traditional way. Because we talk about so many important subjects under this rubric of faith. And, and these are people with spiritual lives, with ethical lives, and they wanted to be part of those conversations. And it was a wonderful thing that this felt like a place where they could be let in. So it just, it felt really important to me to create a title that was more spacious and hospitable. And, and that's what On Being was. And of course, it got lots of blowback and you know, the brand, I don't even want to talk about the branding piece of it. And we had a terrible logo for five years, but um, now we have a good logo. And uh, it wasn't actually a change. It was, it, it was actually, um, the, the other thing I think, uh, that I, just the final thing is, I think the speaking of faith sounded like you're talking about answers. And what I got clearer and clearer on in myself is that what I was uh, fascinated by are the animating questions behind this part of life. Um, so, so, so renaming the show was actually giving it a name that better fit what was going on by kind of year seven. Um, and then I think once it happened, it was kind of a non-event. I mean, because really nothing changed. I mean, except that it's very, it's been very evolution. I mean, it changes all the time, actually. We're, it gets better and better. We're, we're restless. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Well, I am absolutely delighted for what is the last two years you've been on local our local NPR station, KCBX. I picked oh, you up, I'm glad. I picked you up accidentally driving home from a plant meeting several years ago, and, I, uh, on, on a, and I've been uh, kind of following you for the last several years. Absolutely. And I've been encouraging people to uh, uh, let, uh, tune into your show and pledge during your show. Anyway, what I've noticed is how, how I don't know if you do this 
consciously or unconsciously, how, how some of your shows tie into, it, tie into other events. For instance, um, one week the, uh, uh, they were doing an, an interview, one of, I think the guy the following the piano jazz, Bobby McFerrin. Yeah. The, 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 the same week on Wednesday, you were talking from the spiritual aspects. Yeah. The other thing I've been, I just finished, I finished uh, Jonathan Sachs' book, Not in God's Name, mm-hmm. and about, say, and the, uh, the neurosurgeon you were talking about was talking about this, some of the, we need to see more people as us and not as them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, and my producers and I, we notice this happening all the time, and it's not planned, but... Uh, and I'm not going to be able to get, but th- themes start collecting and building. Like right now, we're in a beauty streak. Um, so David White was on last week, and then I ha- we had this physicist on next week, Frank Wilczek. Um, and oh, and you know, beauty is one of my favorite themes. Anyway, um, it's it's really interesting because because one of the things we do intentionally, which is a little bit. Mm, it's, I don't think any other sh- other shows don't do it this way. We, we really work at uh, shaking things up. So, I mean, we do a lot of, over time, scientists and poets and social act- action people and uh, theologians, but we mix them up. Um, but even as we do that, there, you know, ideas um, in the moment tend to kind of accumulate and build and also sometimes amazing resonance with what's going on in the culture when we don't plan it so I don't know maybe there is a God (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I just want to end by saying you, you had a really profound program with the poet Christian Wyman. Yes. Uh, and he said that every now and then he starts wondering if there's a future for poetry or is he going to be able to support his family or what's going to happen next month. He's living with uncertainty. And then he has a really um, honest and intimate conversation with a friend. And he says beautifully, it clears the air and it returns him to the best part of himself. So I just want to thank you on behalf of all of us for clearing the air tonight and clearing the air for millions of us for many, many years and bringing us back to that part that's most cherished and most easily lost. So thank you so much. Thank you.